You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. Before we begin this week's episode, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our patrons. Thank you so much to everyone who is helping to make this podcast possible. As I outlined um, on Twitter and in my message to some of you, um, Justin Ward, my sound engineer, and I are using the patron money to help make this podcast the best we can. And I do write to all patrons individually to thank you for joining If I haven't had a chance to do that yet, in your case, and you have joined recently, thank you so much. And now, welcome to my guest, Tom Chivers. Tom is a freelance science writer and the author of the award-winning book, The AI Does Not Hate You, Superintelligence, Rationality and the Race to Save the World. For some reason, uh, I have it, as, as I always do, I have it on both Kindle and Audible, and for some reason, my that's the title of the Audible version, but my Kindle version is called The Rationalist Guide to the Galaxy, Superintelligent AIs and the Geeks Who Are Trying to Save Humanity's Future. Um, and I think I like that title even better. So the title is The AI Does Not Hate You. That title is taken from um, Eliezer Yudkowsky, who writes, The AI does not hate you, nor does it love you but you are made of atoms which it can use for something else. Very chilling. Yes. Um, yes, well, the uh, people always think the book title is really optimistic, and uh, I then have to say, well, it, 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 it sort of sounds it, but then the, 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 when you take the full quote, it's definitely less optimistic than that. I should say that I went into a little kind of very, very enjoyable, down a very enjoyable little rabbit hole um, towards the end of last year in December of 2020, um, I read um, Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, Toby Ord's book, The Precipice, um, the book Super Forecasting. Um, and I interviewed the super forecaster, Michael Story. He's not the author of the book, but I interviewed him. Mm. Um, and I also read some of um, Eliezer Yudkowsky's writings. And it was, it was, um, it was extremely fun, but I think that if you are interested in these kinds of topics and you're only going to read one thing, your book is really the best overview and summary of all of that stuff, the best kind of entree into that whole world. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I, I also have read, I think, all the books you just said, just mentioned, and I am... Um... I thought like Bostrom's was extremely interesting, but it is written. It's a it's a work of technical philosophy. You know, it's not a it's not a book for, um, it's not it's not it's not a, a beginner's book. It's not a pop science book. It, it you know, there's an awful lot of really really in depth stuff there, and I, I sort of read it very very slowly, taking notes all the way through to make any sort of headway with it. So my book is very much meant at people who want who want to understand this stuff, but don't have to spend weeks desperately digging through really dense prose. 
Oh, right. I didn't find it quite as dense as that. And oh. I was listening to it on audio whilst I was running. Um, oh, the, the, the Bostrom one, you mean? The Bostrom one, yes. Yeah. Um, oh, but, but nevertheless, your book is, I wouldn't say that it's, his book is very dry. Your book is hmm. full of kind of, um, it's a mixture of uh, quite dense philosophizing in places and anecdote and interviews. Um, and you are equally interested in the kind of technical problems, which mm. um, Nick's and Toby's books outline and in the kind of human element. But maybe let's start with, uh, with some of the technical stuff, the, the nature of the threat that AI poses. And then we can get on to who this bunch of geeks are that you're writing about mm. and why they're concerned about it. You have a really nice illustration in your book of the kinds of problems that we might not anticipate having with AI, but which are more likely to be the kinds of problems we encounter, or as far as we can tell, because one of the problems is, who knows? Um, hmm. And that is the, the image of the sorcerer's apprentice from Fantasia. Um, can you talk us through that? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's been a been a long going ongoing sort of uh, bugbear with people who worry about these things the rationalist um community that when you start talking about the risk of ai the the image that everyone uses leaps to straight away as an image of the terminator um you know glowing red eyes humanoid um uh, achieves sentience whatever you know rebels against its creator and they say no this is this is the wrong way to think about it that's not the the real risk the the risk he says instead of uh, thinking of that, we should think of yeah, exactly the um, the, the sorcerer's apprentice. In the sorcerer's apprentice, um, Mickey, um, well, obviously in the in the Disney version, Mickey Mouse is the sorcerer's apprentice, and he is told to fill up a cauldron with water, um, and because that's boring and it takes a long time, he enchants a broom to do it for him, and you know the broom grows little waddle, little arms and waddles off and uh, goes off to do its job, and Mickey goes to sleep. And then a little while later, Mickey wakes up to find that the whole room is flooded and is in danger of drowning. And what the rationalist would say is that this is this is this is the way it can goes wrong. It's not it's not that it doesn't do what you say; it does exactly what you say in uh, catastrophic ways. So you know you've you've given the to say you're a computer programmer and said oh so I say that Mickey is a computer programmer. Um, you know he's not he's he's not an idiot. He's not going to say bring in water forever and never stop. What you do, well done, it is give it a reward function, like you know, you get uh, the reward function being like you know, the way of instructing an AI. You say give it, you say you get one point if the cauldron is full, you get zero if the cauldron is empty. Um, you can't get more than one, so there's no reason to fill the cauldron up several times. Just go and do whatever is most likely to get you that one. Um, and uh, you know that sounds quite sensible to me because you know I'm not a programmer, but the the thing is that, that because that is all the broom now cares about, it goes and starts taking filling up the filling up the thing. And the, the, imagine the cauldron is full up to near the brim. The 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 broom will go, but could go. Well, that's probably nearly enough done. Might as well stop there. But you haven't given it any reason to do that. You've just said carry on filling it filling up until you're sure it's full. And it's never be you know it might say oh I'm ninety eight percent sure it's full, but might as well add a few more bar bu uh, buckets to be sure. Then it's ninety nine point nine 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 percent sure it's full. But you know, it might be its sensors might be malfunctioning or whatever. So keep adding, keep adding. You might as well, and that's what you end up with the uh, thing being full. And a human wouldn't ever do that because a human would 
know that it's not actually all we care about. We don't we don't just care about whether the cauldron is full. We care about whether the room is flooded. We care about if Mickey drowns. And that and that in our reward function in inverted commas, that is a much more a much worse outcome than the uh, cauldron being filled is good. So we so we would know to say okay, we'll get it. we'll be pretty sure it's full and then we'll stop. But the, you haven't put that into the AI. You haven't said told the AI to care about these other things. And that is where in in a in a in other situations that aren't brooms filling up cauldrons, that is what the the rationalist community, the AI safety community, worry will happen on much more dramatic, much more large scale, much more deadly ways. Yes. And even when Mickey tries to chop up the broom, it just um, divides into lots of little smaller brooms. I'll put a link to this <laughs> to this episode in the show notes. Because, uh, you know, part of the you, if you pro- you've programmed the AI to fulfill its function, then of course mm. being destroyed will stop it from fulfilling its function. So it's going yes. to resist, quote unquote, being destroyed. Uh, exactly. It's going to resist being turned off, um, which yeah. obviously has very potentially frightening implications. Yeah, I mean, in the in uh, in. Fantasia and Disney's Fantasia that exactly it, it he chops it up it, it grows back millions of little and and AI safety people might say this isn't a, this is a quite a decent representation of how it would happen how it could happen with AIs because an AI could copy itself across the internet until it goes around or you know equally it could um, hack into the nuclear codes and blow everyone up if the, if in a, in a more dramatic example you know or there 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 are there are, if if because. If you are exactly as you say, if you are if you are given a task of fill this cauldron, you will know whatever you know or any task, you will know that if you are destroyed, it'll almost certainly make you less likely to complete that task. Whether you know, even if you don't care about your own safety, your own existence, which you could make an AI that doesn't care about its own safety, doesn't care about its own existence, it will care about completing the task that you've given it because that's all it cares about. And if if being destroyed will stop it from completing that, it will do everything it can to avoid being destroyed, and that might be resisting you in violent or unpleasant ways. Mm, yeah. Or or not even waiting until you start to try to destroy yeah. it, but just just in case, preemptively uh, nuking yes. the whole of humanity. <laughs> yes, well, exactly, yeah. It, it, the trouble is it all sounds a bit like we're being sort of talking sci-fi craziness, but yeah, I mean, that, that it, that's, exactly, that's exactly the thing. It's like you, you don't, from the AI's point of view, if there is a concern that you might, it might be switched off and it doesn't know to trust you not to switch you off, then it might, might preempt your decision. This, you know, in the, in, in the same way as... Uh, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis or the um, the, the the First World War. No, no no one wanted to go to war, but everyone was scared that other people wanted to go to war. So they build up they build up the tension. The tension builds up. Tension builds up. The with with an AI a a similar from a game theory point of view, a similar sort of mechanism could be in place in which you are. Um, uh, the, the AI is scared that you will over, will try to switch it off, and so to preempt that, it, it makes sense for it for it from a sort of yeah from a game theory point of view to destroy you utterly first before you get the chance to destroy it, and that uh, that is where yeah that these are the sort of things that they worry about. Yeah, you have a lovely um, analogy for this um, for what the AI quote unquote wants. Hmm. Um, I'm going to read this passage. Everything the AI wants to do is something you have to put into it. And in fact, this is obvious to you when you think about it. Because it's exactly what happens with us. This wasn't obvious to me, by the way. 
Yeah. Um, we enjoy sex and sugary and fatty foods because evolution programmed us to enjoy these things. But evolution does not care at all whether we enjoy the taste of dairy milk or the sensation of a really shattering orgasm. It just cares, in inverted commas, um, about whether or not eating sugary foods and having sex causes us to have more offspring. And yet we humans care not at all that this is what evolution, quote unquote, wants from us. We still enjoy sex when we use birth control, even though it means that no genes will be passed on at all. We understand that what evolution, quote unquote, really meant is for us to have sex in order to have offspring. But we don't try to overcome our neural programming. We don't care what our programmer really meant. Yeah, yeah. That's um, so. I mean, this this was a, a response to something that some people said to me was that like, if this AI is super smart, then it'll know that we don't we don't want to we don't want it to you know to if we if we ask it to cure cancer, it will know that it doesn't want us to blow the world up in the in the process of curing cancer or whatever you know whatever goal you give it. We don't want it to then go and do something terrible to all humans. We want it to. We, it, surely it's smart enough to work out what we quote unquote really want, but then. We haven't told it to care what we quote unquote really want. We've told it to care about what we told it to care about. And just as we don't care about, or most of us don't care about our reproductive fitness, you know, we don't care about the number of copies of our genes that make it to how how many generations down the line. We care about things that evolution has given us as a proxy for those things. We care about, you know, our our children's well-being. We care about enjoying sex and enjoying food. And uh, we are are programmed to care about those because they have in the past mapped on well to reproductive fitness, but they don't perfectly. And in modern society, they do increasingly less well because, you know, of the existence of birth control and the abundance of fatty foods and all these things. But we still enjoy those things. We don't go, well, you know, oh, actually, um, eating eating this donut and... um, uh, having sex is not good for my reproductive fitness, so I won't do it. We still enjoy it, and that's that is by analogy uh, a way of thinking about what the, what the AI would care about. It would it, we could tell it, but this isn't what I asked you for. But that is what we told it to do, so that is what it would care about. Right, and of course, what it would care about would not be. Oh yeah, I think this is where you're quoting from Bostrom that intelligence and final goals are orthogonal axes, i.e. You, you can be intelligent in that you are good at bringing about your, your personal goals, hmm. but those goals may be very unwise. And I think the example you give is if you were asked to collect all of the um, pennies, all of the um, coinage in the entire UK and build a statue out of it, Hmm. Um, of some, I can't remember who you choose. Some it was, well, it was my kid. My children were very small at the time, so I believe it was, um, I believe it was Maka Packer out of uh, in the Night Garden, a CBBS show. So that because that was on my mind a lot because I was watching ah, these terrible okay. CBBS programs for for kids uh, a lot. So yes, so um, but yes, exactly. You could very if if you were if you are given that. The, I I think I I used the, I, I distinguished between intelligence and wisdom, which I don't think was yes, a Bostrom phrase, but yeah, the um, it seemed to me to map onto that to sort of fairly well. Mm-hmm. But if if mm-hmm. if you were given that task, there is an optimal way of doing it. When when AI researchers talk about intelligence or perhaps about rationality or optimization, they talk about 
how good a an agent, whether it's an AI or a person or a dog, how however you know however good that whatever that is, how how good they are at achieving the tasks you give it, whether it's winning chess games or um, well, I don't know recognizing faces or something like that. You know, th- there is this task you give it, you measure how good they are at that task, and then and that is how good they are in in that whatever that task is. That's how intelligent they are, or if you prefer, how rational or how opt- how good at optimizing. Yes. So there's an optimum way of doing that, of exactly. creating that sculpture, but there's no wise way of doing that because no. it's not a wise thing to do. No, it's a complete mad waste um, of time. Yeah, it's a, it's a stupid yes, thing to exactly. do. Yeah, exactly. I think this is a nice illustration of how your book differs from Bostrom's um, because Bostrom talks about the orthogon- orthogonality thesis, mm. intelligence and final goals are orthogonal axes along which possible agents can freely vary. I, I remember, I clearly remember rewinding this several times when mm. I was running. <laughs> uh, whereas you talked about in terms of intelligence versus wisdom, um, you know, you just have a much more clear, um, a much more concrete way of putting things. Well, I think this is, uh, this is a journalism thing, I think. like they, Or at least I, I, well, maybe it isn't, because I did philosophy at university as well. And I've also found, even then, I like just explaining things in like concrete examples that people will get. I mean, because I, I think you you can when you sort when you say final goals and intelligence are orthogonal to each other and you can vary along both axes, I can work out what that means. But I'd much prefer it if someone said, for example, you know, you can be really bright, you can be amazingly good at solving these problems, but you can use that intelligence to solve really stupid problems. That then I, I and then give me an example. I I find that much easier to follow, and I th- I think most other people do. I think it is easier for people to have concrete examples with the the general case explained as well so that they can then they can you know they can say okay, here's the general case here's a concrete example and now you can with with the two you can sort of get a sense of it the the, the specific example illustrates the general case and I, I i i thought bostrom's book was brilliant but this is what i mean about it being more dense and more for the um the sort of hard hard philosophy reader is that he 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 wasn't make he wasn't going out of his way to make it easy for the reader in situations like that i don't think um no definitely not mm. I, uh, so I want to get on to um, something that's completely missing from um, Bostrom's and all of the other books, which is the human interest, mm. um, the group of geeks that you talk about. One of the things that interested me uh, most is the ways in which the kinds of thinking traps that normies fall into, yeah. um, which this group of rationalists do not make. One of the first things maybe we could talk about is this rationalist phrase the map is not the territory um talk us through that okay i mean it's um it's an old phrase in statistics as well i think but the uh, the idea is that um in well in a statistical model for instance if uh if i if i make a model uh, or a, an algorithm that says that direct that um uh, i want to predict the the weather or something like that i i i can i can make a i can make a I can make a model that predicts the weather in, uh, to some degree of accuracy, but it will never be perfect. So, there, so there, there will always be some. Um, uh, so there, there is there is the real world in which the um, yeah, we, the weather is how it is, and then uh, I've got my model which is predicting the weather to some degree, and it, it will never it will never be perfect because the map will not contain all the things that are in the territory. So I I, I can make a really good. Uh, model, but it, might, won't, it won't include the colours of the, all the cars on the road. It won't include, include these details that probably won't affect things that much. But it's not perfect, so nothing will ever match. So, and then there's a in the, when the rationalists talk about it, what they sort of mean is 
there are facts about my beliefs. I I have a mental model of the universe, you know, and the mental model says that over my right shoulder there's a door, um, straight in front of me there's a laptop. Uh, in space there are black holes, and those black holes give out Hawking radiation. You know, those are facts about my beliefs, and they are. They are just, they, you know, we're, we're, that, that's facts about my brain. Then there's facts about the universe. Is there really a door over my shoulder and to the right? Is there really a laptop in front of me? Is there a, um, uh, if, we, if I went out into space and looked at black holes with a special measuring instrument of some kind, would they be giving out radiation as, uh, as predicted by Stephen Hawking? You know, these are facts about the universe, and they are two different things and uh, what a lot of the time people sort of forget that they talk that i think is the rationalist point they sort of um they think they they are they they take their beliefs and sort of assume they are true things about the universe but actually sometimes you need what when they say the, the map is not the territory or they say you have to go out and check and see and compare compare your beliefs with the universe rather than just argue it through i think was was that sort of what you were getting at was that was that the yes hmm. yes certainly there's that there's also another kind of element to that which is um that people tend to judge ideas based on their assessment of how trustworthy, uh, well, not just how trustworthy, but what they think of the of the person who is uh, who is voicing those ideas. Um, so let me find. There's an example. There's some nice examples you give here. Um, oh, I think it's about. Um, you give an example about um, climate change. For example, if I I can't know whether um, anthropogenic climate change is an urgent problem by deciding whether or not I like kind of the kinds of people who are climate change activists, yeah. or whether I think they're sort of silly hippies or um, panic mongers, or whether they're on the same side of the political fence as me, um, or whether they vote the same way as I do, or you know whether they don't tend to wear deodorant and have hand-knitted sweaters mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Yeah. All of that is, we tend to use that, those ideas about the people who are voicing uh, opinions as a, a sort of proxy for deciding whether or not the opinions are true. Whereas the only way to find out is to go and look at the statistics and the science um, and completely ignore what you think of the people themselves. So we substitute, I think, as you put it, we substitute psychologizing for yeah. investigation. And that's something that the rationalists avoid. Yeah, I think that's true. Or they, or they you know, I think they would say they, they try to avoid, you know, because obviously that's... They try would to avoid, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. They would recognize they're humans too. But I think that's a really, I mean, it's a really key point about um, uh, climate change, which is, you know, there is, it's, it's, it comes up a lot. People say, well, you know, climate change uh, or um, belief in climate change is a cult. It's a religion, you know, it has all these... Um, uh, and, and you know you can see where people think that it is why, why that is because they say like you know okay the um uh, there are charismatic people who um uh, who sort of lead it to some degree I suppose I was going to say Al Gore but he's not especially charismatic but you know the the there there are sort of there are figureheads and then there is there are people there are people who, there are um, indulgences that you have to pay and sort you know like we all have to reduce our um, carbon footprint and by doing that we have to recycle is the sort of rituals we all obey and you can sort of see how there are certain psychological aspects of um, 
the climate change movement, the green movement, the green, you know, the, the map onto um, religion. You know, there's this idea of sin. It is our sin that is destroying the world. There's an end of the world that that comes, but we destroy it through climate change. I can, and you can you can tell this story that tell, sounds really good. Oh yes, it does map onto the death cults or or the you know uh, um, revelation era Christ, Christianity or whatever. But that doesn't tell you whether or not the seas will rise. And it doesn't tell you whether the, the there'll be deforestation, you know, whether they um, the crops will fail. It doesn't tell the tell you whether animals become extinct. And those things you have to go out and look and what whatever yeah exactly as you say what whatever you think about the the green movement and whether 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 you think they seem like a bunch of uh, cultists or whatever, it, it doesn't tell you about what about the, the the sort of fundamental underlying reality, which is that you which to do to understand you need to then go and have some stab at understanding the science, or at least you have to be able to go and find people whose judgment you trust, because we can't all we can't all be experts in everything. We can't all go and understand um, both. You know, we can't we can't be lifelong experts who spent a career studying COVID and studying climate change and studying uh, immunotherapy and studying uh, engineering i don't know you know the, we we have we only have one one lifetime we have to only become experts in a few things and so to some point you will have to accept the to accept authority but simply saying these guys behave like a cult or these guys guys behave like a religion isn't telling you anything about the underlying reality and it is instead it's trying to psycholo- psychologize your way to the truth exactly as you say mm. i found the passage or one of the passages um, you can't find out whether the world is warming by asking about the psychology of greens. Hmm. Paul Crowley grumbled when I put the whole cult religion thing to him. Yeah. You have to look at satellite data and CO2 concentration and that kind of thing. It's ultimately a massive distraction. Psychology just doesn't work if you want to find out about the world. Yes, exactly. I mean, this was in response to me, because the, uh, you know, we uh, talk about the, the, the rationalists themselves, the geeks, they... They get accused of being a cult um, quite a lot because they, you know, they have uh, this um, have charismatic figureheads. Again, there are people like uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky and there's um, uh, Scott Alexander, who's a wonderful blogger um, and very much in the forefront of these things, and various others. And they too have a sort of um, have a, an end of the world story that where you know AI takes everything over and sm- and blows everything up, and they have um, things you have to do to stop it like you know you have to give money to effective altruist uh, things or, or or whatever you know and again you can map that on very neatly onto either the green um story of uh, with the end of the world or you can map it onto uh, christianity or um the you know david koresh and the branch davidians whatever you know some death cult but as paul is saying that doesn't help you understand whether or not AI really is a dangerous thing. It just helps you understand that you don't like this particular group of people. But you still need to go and say, well, so what are the... How does AI work now? Are people who worry about... Who who, who know AI, are they seriously worried about the ways it can go wrong? Are these... You know, are, are, are there reasonable reasons to think that this could be a thing that goes wrong? I, I have done my very limited best to understand it, and I think it is not a crazy thing to worry about and that you know and it, the, this the the idea that the world could go terribly wrong on the uh, off on the basis of uh, us developing ai without taking suitable precautions i i that that seems like a sensible thing to spend a reasonable amount of money to prevent you know without without saying we have to 
turn over every single penny of our of global GDP to prevent it. But we could be spent, you know, at the moment we spend a small number of millions of pounds per, uh, on, on worrying about AI safety. And is that enough? Maybe a bit more? I don't know. But it's, it's the point is, it's not a, it's not a stupid thing to be dedicating some num- some amount of uh, our national or global effort towards avoiding. I think is is the point that Paul was making in that and uh, what the the sort of the religion psychologizing uh, analogy discussion was about. Let's say a little bit more about what makes AI the prospect of the the singularity, the uh, human superhuman level AI. Uh, what makes that so uniquely dangerous? Well, okay. So they, when I spoke to um, uh, the people at the Open Philanthropy Project who worry about, and people like Toby Ord as well, who you've, whose book you've read, who worry about existential risk, they put AI and uh, le- level with, or sort of, they, they say the two most uh, likely things that will actually wipe out humanity as opposed to simply causing a lot of harm, uh, you know, killing many, many people, being dreadful, but actually killing everyone or otherwise completely limiting the future of humanity. They, they put AI and bioengineered pandemics at the top. And I think that is because, or I don't think, I know that is because in, in those two cases, I mean, if you have, if a nuclear bomb goes off and it lowers the temperature of the globe and ever, and it makes it really, really hard for everyone and shatters the, the uh, <clears throat> climate for a thousand years, probably a few people will survive in small pockets somewhere in, you know, uh, around the equator or something like that. And eventually, you know, a, a thousand years in the, pro- in the, in the sort of scale of human uh, species existence isn't that big a deal it's obviously a very very big deal for the individual humans and societies but a thousand years you know we can probably expect human humanity to survive on this planet for about another billion years if we don't mess it up ourselves the um so all, all many of these things you know pandemics you know normal pandemics they kill a lot of people they're really dreadful but they don't um they're unlikely to wipe out the entire population if you know even if there was some really weird one that killed many millions. You'd have isolated uh, populations that would probably survive without, or there'd be some people who'd be immune. But with AI and to some extent with bioengineered pandemics that are really sort of designed to kill, the point is they would get around. They could get everyone uh, AI because it would it would be able to sort of train. You know, if you, even if it would track people down if they if they dug themselves into things. If it, if it had decided to kill people, then it's and it's much cleverer than us. Then it just then it can simply you know can track people into their bunkers. It can go to their space uh, habitats or whatever. You know, so so it has this ability over and above most you know most um, uh, sort of threats to humanity of of really seeking out individuals. Um, there, I suppose, like with something like um, big big asteroids hitting the planet, that could kill everyone without having to seek everyone out. But we know from the simple fact that life on this planet has survived for so long that they can't be that common. Because if there were even only one every five thousand years or something, the chance of uh, having made it the two hundred fifty thousand years of modern humans living this long, then that would be vanishingly small. You know, they, they, they cannot be, they simply cannot mathematically be that common. But something like that. Um, and actually, um, this is a slight aside, but mm. uh, I talked recently to biologist Sean Carroll, mm. and um, he says that even with a large asteroids, it depends entirely where they hit. So the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs and mm. enabled uh, us mammals to evolve, if it had 
hit 30 minutes early or 30 minutes later, um, it would not have hit volatile, such volatile rocks, and it wouldn't have caused a major climactic disaster. Oh, that's really interesting. Much more localized. I, I don't think I knew that. I, I, I did. I do remember reading the, the the particular things it hit were relevant, but I hadn't realized it. So even just just from the Earth spinning, it just it just got really unlucky and hit the uh, yes the one bit where it blew everything up. Oh God, poor old dinosaurs. um but yes yeah so uh uh, sorry i've now forgotten what we were just talking about but yeah so that's so so i think that that is you know if if you accept the premise that an ai firstly is or premises that an ai is much cleverer than us and a it's much cleverer than b that it's has some reason to want to kill us all whether that's because it fears us or because it thinks that killing us is the quickest way to get to its to achieving its goal whatever that goal is then an AI, because you know, being clever is a massive advantage, right? In 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 everything, humans are fairly weak and not particularly dangerous physically, but we are the massively dominant species on the planet because we are somewhat cleverer than chimpanzees. Not that much, you know. The the difference between us and chimpanzees is not huge in terms of genes, but in terms of and even probably in terms of absolute intelligence, if insofar as that's anything, that's a meaningful thing to talk about. But the the that's that small difference is enough to mean that they cling to survival in a few places in you know the the Rift Valley and so on. And we uh, are on every single continent, including Antarctica, and uh, occasionally pop out into space and things. And and that is that. So something that is as much more intelligent as we are. Uh, than we are as we are than chimpanzees or you know than nematode worms or whatever would presumably have some gigantic advantage of, over us in terms of its ability to wipe us out if it so so chose so i think that that is the difference you know an asteroid may or may not happen but is very unlikely a uh, pandemic or a climate change or nuclear explosion could kill many many people but it wouldn't have this tendency to just want to seek out every last one and wouldn't necessarily have the ability to do so. So I think I think that think that is why they worry that it is the um the most deadly and imminent. And it's also the kind of ratcheting effect, the the fact that AIs are so easily able to learn from themselves. Um so you were describing I think it's you and not Bostrom, were describing the Go, the computers. Yeah. The computers that learn to play Go. Um and the computer learned by simply playing against itself billions of times yeah. uh, until it became the best Go player in the world. And when you have that kind of level of intelligence, you just you know that the thing can beat you, mm. but you don't know how. So you have no way of predicting what the in, uh, what the steps will be, and therefore doing something to present it prevent it so it's like and this is an analogy you use so i'm not quoting exactly here i don't remember precisely but Mm. um it's as if i were to sit down and play chess against gary kasparov Mm. um i know that he would win (laughs) obviously (laughs) he'd probably win in about four moves so it wouldn't be very interesting but just Mm. imagine i was a much better chess player than i am and i could actually play for more than 30 seconds against him um but I know that he would win, but there's nothing I could possibly do to prevent him from winning. Because in order to know how he would win, I would have to be as good at chess as he is. Yes. 
So it's impossible. You know, I can't, there's nothing I can do to prevent it because I don't know. I know he'll win, but I don't know what steps he'll take. Mm. I don't know what any of the intermediate stages will be. No. Um, I don't know what pieces he'll use. I don't know what his, what strategy he'll adopt. Yeah. And I just don't have the intelligence to know. Exactly. Well, this was this was an analogy again. Um, I think this is lifted from Yudkowsky, uh, and he makes the point, you know, that actually in science, if you want to predict um, the outcome of some complex system, say, you know, where where a comet will be in, you know, this it's orbiting the sun, and you know where all the planets are, you want to know where it'll be in two thousand years. To get there, you have to you have to you know, it's it's actually pretty straightforward if there's not too many moving parts, but you need to work out all the in 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 um, the intervening steps. You see, the, the comet goes around these planets. You know, it is affected by these planets, but, and you can work out where it goes. But the, and then by working through all the intervening steps, you can say in two thousand years it'll be just past the orbit of um, Neptune, or whatever. You know. But he's saying with intelligence, with rational optimizing things like Gary Kasparov, or or chess playing computers, or or just humans in general, or anything anything that has some goal in the universe and wants to complete it, you can say with with the with the Kasparov example, you say look, I. I can predict some. I, I can predict something about the final state of this chessboard, which is that it'll be a final state in which I have lost. Um, but I, I can't really predict much about the intervening steps. I can, you know, I can say he'll probably move his king's pawn forward two squares or his queen's pawn forward two squares. That's more likely than him moving his knight, his uh, rook pawn forward one square or something, because that's a really basic move. But in, in, in any sort of complex situation, I will not be able to predict his next move, but I will be able to predict that whatever it is, it leads to me losing because you know that he is a uh, he has this goal and you know he's very very good at achieving his goal, so he will therefore push me and push the universe into where he into a state that he wants it to be. So you can predict the universe that way, and that's really different. In fact, yeah, I don't know anything about the final state 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 of the board even, except that. My king is going to be lying horizontal. Yes, exactly. I, I will be checkmated, or I will have resigned. Uh, those, those, you know, those are the two the two ways it's going to end up, and um, and that is, you know, that that is that is quite an unusual thing about uh, a, a unusual thing in science. We'll say I know how it's going to end up, but I don't know how it's going to get there. Uh, and that, uh, but that, and that is a, there's a fact about sort of optimizing rational beings. They have these goals, and with an AI that you have, where you can be sure that it is much cleverer than you at, at, at achieving whatever goal it wants to achieve and when that goal is not the same as your goal it will you can be very confident that it will get there because its ability to steer the universe in the way that it wants to go is so much greater than yours and that is you know so then that that is where it becomes exactly that it becomes dangerous where if you haven't managed to correctly align the ai's goals with your own and it goes down some route which has which ends up damaging your own goals which i my goals for example staying alive or you know my, my family staying alive and the world staying alive if it's start if it if its goals don't align with that then we are the ones in trouble not it because it is clever in us i think i think I, I, yeah is that, is that sort of where where you where you're going with that uh yes yeah well i mean i'm going wherever you want to go Tom. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh. okay yeah uh, um yeah I, just, I thought i found that metaphor really interesting with the chess things, I found it sort of um, it gets across a point about the sort of what it means to be rational, what it means to be op, you know, be, to be intelligent. And people get really um, they, the word intelligence is really loaded, isn't it? You know, people don't like the word. You know, they, they don't like saying a computer is intelligent. 
has, has intelligence because there's something very human about the word. They don't like saying a computer has creativity or whatever. So it's sometimes better to sort of move away to just talking about talking about something something a bit less loaded. Like you know, is this computer is amazingly good at doing achieving the tasks you give it, at optimizing for this particular number in on this spreadsheet or you know the, uh, optimizing for number of chess games won or something like that and or then if we're talking about a, a more you know a something broader optimizing for uh for the, the max maximizing the number of, amount of money in this bank account or whatever you know there's um the the, the uh, you can you give the, the the we don't necessarily need to talk about whether it is intelligent we can talk about whether or not it is good at doing the things we want it to do whether it is competent and i think, think sometimes that avoids um some of the uh, more uh, sort of linguistic arguments. They can't can't have true intelligence. It can't be truly creative. It's not really conscious. Well, okay, fair enough. But we can all agree that it is really, really good at doing that specific thing that we asked it to do, and that becomes that, and that avoids a lot of the um, uh, the complications. I wanted to also ask you about some of the other kinds of ways of thinking that characterize the rationalists. Some of which I found quite alienating. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, this sort of utilitarian calculus. Um, and you have this very disturbing long passage in the book, which is about utilitarian ways of calculating suffering, uh, which goes against everything I read in um, Those Who Walk Away from Omelas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, can, you, can you talk to us about that? Talk us through that idea. I mean, it's it's a, it's another it's another thought experiment from Yukowski, but the um, the idea is, he says, you know, is if imagine some truly breathtaking number. I mean, the, the, he the, he suggests, I think, in in one he suggests, I can't. The, there's there's a number you can write by putting a three, then an arrow up, then an arrow up, then an arrow up, then another three, and that and that and that is, um, I, I, if I'm trying to get this right, and I may get it wrong, but it's the if if three. Plus um, three to the power three is oh, anyway. It's it's a gigantically impossibly large number, which makes a Googleplex look uh, vanishingly tiny. Like, you know, the n- number of atoms in the universe would be a, a tri- you know trillionth of a, a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of percent. You know, it, it just just vastly huge. He says there is some number of dust specks in the eye. Imagine a dust speck in the eye um, uh, that you know, irritates you for five seconds. You rub your eye; it's gone. There is some number of dust specks in the. If, if you take, if you have th- three to the arrow, 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 three, whatever number, um, or a Googleplex uh, dust specks in the eye, is that worse than one person being tortured horribly for fifty years? And he says this is obviously it must be true because the you know the 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 that you can add up this 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 suffering in some way, otherwise and. He taught, I would have to go back to the book um, and look it through in detail, but I mean, the, I, 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 I have a lot of sort of sympathy for it. I think that there is a there 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 uh, suffering is real, and if you if if you add up, it must be possible. In some, there must be some sense in which two people suffering a small amount small amount of suffering is worse than one person suffering a small amount of suffering. Uh, you know, five people suffering is worse than two, and that and the must that if if you accept that as a basis. Then you must come. To, there must come a point when you know five people suffering a, a, a dust fleck in the eye is worse than someone stubbing their toe or something, which is slightly you know one of them is worse. And eventually, uh, either you have to sort of draw in a, an arbitrary cutoff line, saying yes, these small sorts of hurts are 
you can a sort of fungible. You can say uh, uh, a, a dust spec, five dust specs is worth a um, uh, a stubbed toe, or but then you have to cut it off hard when it gets to some random, you know, some arbitrary point. You know, when 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 we're talking about broken legs or torture or something, you know, there's a, there's some point where you have to say, and no longer does it, it no longer applies past this point. Or you can say there's no possible way in which to compare suffering at all. In which case, you have you. I don't know how you say that a, a stubbed toe is worse than a dust fleck, or for that matter, how a broken arm is worse than a dust speck or whatever. You know, they're, they're, if you're not willing to say that one is better or worse than the other, then I don't know how you do that. And if if you're not willing to take either of those two steps, then you sort of end up having to admit that eventually some number of specks of dust in the eye is adds up to one person being tortured for 50 years i don't i don't i i I, maybe this is the sort of really nerdy rationalist bit in me as well but like i i just i I sort of i can't i can't see i can't see how you get around that you know i can't i can't see how you can say yes i uh i agree that a um uh some that stubbing your toe is worse than a uh, speck of dust in your eye and i agree that um breaking your arm is worse than the spec than a than a uh um, uh, stubbed toe and that torturing is worse than breaking your arm. And I also, and also, you know, three stubbed toes is worse than one worse toe. One stubbed toe. I, I don't see how you can take these sort of things and then not end up eventually saying either. Yep, we uh, uh, to a, a, a vast number of dust specks in the eye is worse than torture fifty years, or just saying at some point arbitrarily you can't compare. You have to cut off your suffering threshold at some point, and and just say that we're we're not allowed to compare beyond those lines, and that seems strange to me. You know, I, I don't know how I don't I, I can't hold that in my mind. So you say this really doesn't fit for you, doesn't work for you? No, because I can't see how the suffering is cumulative if it's different people with the dust specks. You know, if I have fifty dust specks in my eye per minute, then maybe that's uh, is equivalent to being tortured, but. If I have a dust speck in my eye and you have a dust speck in my eye, it's not somehow twice as bad for me, so or for you. Um, so I don't really understand how that can possibly. Okay, but that, but so, then, then then take move it away from the dust specks. If it was some less ambiguous thing, if I break my arm, that's not bad for you necessarily. But if you break your arm, if we both break our arm, that is worse than ju- if I just break my arm, right? That's not. There's not. You know. There's no. It's not that I only care about if I break my arm. If there, there, there is, there is some sense in which the number of bro- we we what we care we want the number of broken arms in the world in the universe to be as little as possible because broken arms are bad. And I, I would I would find it very strange to say that I I don't care anymore about fifty people breaking their arms at once than I do about one person breaking their arm. I would say no, that sounds fifty times as bad to me. If they're not, if it's not me, you know, it doesn't doesn't really make any difference to the numbers. But like, I suppose I would want it even less if one of them was me, because you know I am we are instinctively selfish. But if we imagine there are fifty people getting broken arms, that is fifty times worse than one person getting a broken arm. And insofar as the speck of dust has inflicts any suffering at all, fifty people getting it is worse than is fifty times worse than one person getting it. I mean, if you're saying it just doesn't doesn't cause any suffering then it's no use to the thought experiment and we should choose some other example but i i, I don't i suppose if, if we accept that it causes some amount of suffering then 50 people getting it is worse than one and it doesn't matter if it's you doesn't matter if it's me it could be 50 people somewhere else i you know do, do, if, if i if i use the broken arm as a as a as an example is that does that make it clearer like 50 50 broken arms is worse than one right 
Um, well, not really, because I still think that the dust spec, um, if if we're comparing the broken arm to the 80 years of excruciating torture mm. for the entirety of your life, let's say, from birth until death, you are tortured to to an extent that will not kill you, so you survive through a normal lifespan, but in constant agony. Uh, in that case, the suffering is cumulative. But in the case of my having a broken arm and your having a broken arm, it doesn't seem to me to be cumulative in the same way. So, I mean, I, I suppose I don't like, I mean, I, 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 the, the, there's not, it's not cumulative on the same person, but if, if, you're, yes, a doctor, if you're a doctor, if you're a doctor in a hospital, you, right. And you have, and, you, and like you're, you're a broken arm fixing doctor, and that's your job. And you say, well, you know, you, you presumably think that fixing broken arms is good, and people not having broken arms is, you know, is, you know if broken arms are bad, and fixing broken arms is good. And so on, on a, a good day, only one person comes in with a broken arm. And then and you say, okay, well, great. Only one per- the next day, 50 people come in with broken arms, and that's 50 times as much suffering. You don't, you don't think, oh, it's, it's, no, it's no worse because. There's no, you know, it's only one person. They're all individual people. You say, you know, that that is a bad day. Fifty people broke their arms. That's 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 really bad. You know, that that's that's something I, I that's fifty times as much suffering as happened yesterday. I don't. I, I suppose I can't. I like. I, I can't see how that wouldn't be worse. I, it, you know, if, it, the only outcome there is it, it literally doesn't matter if everyone in the world breaks their arms because it's not cumulative. Well. But if you're the doctor and you have your 50 patients with broken arms or the one patient um, who will die very slowly in excruciating agony, mm. if you don't treat him, don't you prioritize that one patient over the broken arm patients, how many of them there are? Uh, you mean you, you do if there's, well, I don't know, it depends, it depends how many. I mean, if, if, the, if there was, if literally everyone in the world broke their arm and you were the doctor and... I don't know. You, you might reasonably say, I, you know, that I can uh, that the the all, all all these broken arms are. And I, I, you know, you can press one button, right? You've, you've got you can press the one button saying fix all the broken arms in the world, or one button saying this one guy is going to be in loads of pain for the next eighty years, and it's you know maybe let's 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 make it less of a a um an emotive thing than the the torture. That's you know this one some guy is some guy is going to suffer. A really painful bro- broken arm for the rest of his life, and there's not, uh, and and he and and there's and there's and the, and, and then alternatively, everyone in the world is going to have a less badly broken arm, which will which will heal on its own in three months, but with maybe you know and maybe with no loss of mobility uh, uh, or anything. Do we say, and, and maybe you do, that'd be fine. I, I I I would not think it obvious that the seven and a half billion. Bro- uh, quite badly broken arms are not more. If I have one button that could fix all of the all of the, the quite badly broken arms, or one button that can fix the really badly broken arm, I, it's not obvious to me that I should fix the one badly the, the one. You know, I, it seems to me that the seven and a half billion, and that that is a less dramatic version of the same thing. That's the, we're still talking about uh, trading off smaller amounts of suffering in many many people against loads of suffering in one person and i i, I don't know where does that does, does that thought experiment not work for you maybe that gets closer to working but it seems that the the many many people are their suffering is a bit more tangible um whereas we were talking about kind of a very very brief moment of incon of inconvenience of the slightest kind yeah 
Um, but that's but that's the point. That's the point of the thought experiment. Like you, you mm. I, either you draw a hard line. You have to say, okay, so beyond this level of inconvenience and suffering, you know, maybe you say at stub toe level, whatever that is, but uh, below that doesn't matter. Or maybe you say at broken arm level, below that doesn't matter, and it cannot be translated into lo- greater suffering. Or uh, which I mean, where do you, where do you do you have some line you can draw? I don't know how you draw that line, and if you. If you don't do that, if you're not willing to draw some hard line, then you're sort of implicitly acknowledging, or that, well, you could say, which you were doing a moment ago, they're not additive in some way, that there's, that you know, 50 broken arms aren't worse than one broken arm. But that really bumps up against my intuitions. That feels wrong to me. And maybe, mm. I, I think it, well, I don't know, it may, it may not feel quite so wrong to, me, to you, but I, I feel like 50 broken arms, I really deeply feel that is worse than one. And so, so I, one of those two things has to go. Either they're not additive, or there is some, or there, or suffering is not continuous, and there is some point you just have to cut it off and say that that. And and if if you're not willing willing to make one of those two decisions, then it's additive, and all suffering counts, and can be, and eventually some even the smallest tiny bits of suffering will eventually add up to the biggest. And so yeah, you have to. I, I think you have to reject one of those two things. Either it's not additive, or there is some cut off when it doesn't matter. And I I don't I I can't. For me, I can't cut off I, I can't reject either of those two uh, intuitions okay no i i just can't get my head around that at all it doesn't make sense to me That's even fine. just from a kind of triage point of view mm. um i think everybody in the entire universe could have a dust speck in their eye for a second and it it doesn't matter at all um was there something about the rationalist community that you weren't expecting to find that particularly surprised you mm. I tell you what, it was a real shortage of small talk. Like I, when I when I met people in person, I don't know. I'm a I'm a I'm a nervous talker. If you if you put me in a in a room with people I don't know, I'll just sort of gabble. You know, like that. I hate uncomfortable silences, so I gabble. And like I have, I have to talk now. I have to talk now. Make oh god, I sort it. And so I'll 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 just talk about any old thing. And they and. I could see that being like that. That didn't that didn't fit in the social situations where they, 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 they talk, I met them in. I met uh, went to uh, rationalist meetups in California and in London, and it was just it was it was big talk or go home. No 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 no, no small talk. We're talking you know we're talking about um, uh, uh, AIs ending the world or morality and all these things. Just from the minute you, t- you turn up, you order your diet coke and pizza, and you're talking about AIs. You're talking about morality. You're talking about um, uh, I, don't, I don't know whatever that whatever the great big um, uh, conversation of the day is. You know the uh, cost disease or whatever. And 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 it was fascinating, but it was it was kind of hard work because I expect you know like I I, I expected to be I I'm, I'm my, in my usual social situations I'd be more like. Just, aimless small talk about football or you know meaningless banter so that that was that was on you that was hard and i th- and, and and interesting but it was hard and they um i think that was that was probably for, i don't know if that's exactly what the sort of thing you're thinking of but that that, that from on, on the in-person side of things i found that the probably the most the sort of jarring thing i, I felt like they were <laughs> um there was one um uh, they also had this amazingly sort of literal or sort of practical in a practical is not quite the right word, but sort of problem solving approach to things. There was one rationalist I met who was um, thinking about was trying to decide whether or not to have a baby, 
um, which you know, it's a it's a big life decision, right? And I, we, I just uh, most of us would just sort of go on gut feeling or. Um, you know, well, it's what we've always done. Uh, but the the rational the, this rationalist had this, I thought, fantastic idea, which was she said, "Well, I want to know how. You know, I, I like um, sleep and I like holidays and I like work. So, and I gather that small children really interfere with those things. So, I'm going to get one of those robot babies that they give out to high schoolers, um, and they were and which you know wake up in the middle of the night and they cry until you feed it. They cry until they do it. you have to check until." It, to see if it's pooed or to see if it's, you know, hungry or tired, whatever, you know, and yeah, it just keeps you awake for hours. And it's meant to scare American high school kids off having off uh, unprotected sex, I think. And she, she got one of them. And, and, uh, I, uh, I turned up at, at the, um, at this pizza bar, a pizza place in California to meet them. And I, I knew that and I was looking around I was, I, and I saw this, woman with a baby I thought oh it can't be her because I know this uh, the person I'm meeting hasn't got a baby and then eventually it turned out it was her so I had to go and uh, go and sit down and and and, and, she, and, and, and she, she explained this is what she was doing for this sort of practical uh, attempting to find out whether they they um a baby was around her dear but she hadn't foreseen a flaw in the plan which was that when you have a baby that you, you don't realize this until you have babies Everyone, you're suddenly public property, and everyone just comes up to you and says, "Oh, baby, can I can I meet it? Can I see it?" And so she was having to constantly explain to people, "No, it's not a real baby. It's a it's an it's a scientific <laughs> it's a robotics experimental baby." <laughs> having to try and find out whether I and so I think she got an awful lot of odd looks, you know. And then this sort of I I really like that as this sort of this okay, we have this problem. Here is a way of solving it, and direct straight down you know well here's here's a here's i can find out the answer i'll i'll work it out and and you know as it turned out there there were flaws in it and as it turned i would have also said to her because my kids were a bit older at that stage they were sort of three and two years old so well your problems of very very newborn children are not the same of being of having uh, she was having two and three year old children or, or as i now know having six and seven you know five and seven year old children but they yes. uh, I, well <laughs> as as my housemate can tell you is having um mm. Children who are thirty-five. Yes, yeah. I imagine. There, I imagine there's no shortage of uh, you know the problems change from doing so. So I don't know how much she could have learned from the problems of having a newborn, but I did think I I, I found that I don't know if it's exactly something that I found surprising. No, I think I think that was something that really surprised me about, about as a way of approaching the world. But also I thought it was kind of brilliant. You know, like this is not. Yeah, it didn't. Did, what didn't give her perfect information, but it was an attempt to answer this question that l- loads of us have to answer before we go through various decisions in life. Anyway, so I don't know. I don't know if that's quite the sort of uh, example you were hoping for, but I, I, I loved it. I, I thought it was brilliant, and I, it really made me warm to them as a, as a sort of group. Um, Tom, is there anything... I know that your time is, is very short uh, because you're a man much in demand. <laughs> Mainly by my children at this children stage. As yes. much yeah. as anyone else. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> um, but is there anything that you have wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say or any important aspect of the book that I haven't really highlighted uh, not not really I mean the, the only thing I think that the that is um that the you know the the AI the the um the AI safety stuff is a big part of uh the rationalist movement and I think it's really interesting and it gets a lot of press and uh, well, a lot of attention but I I, I really like They've got this sort of, and you, we sort of hinted at it a bit when we were talking about the map is not the territory and so on, but they're very much also about trying to 
think better. They're, they they don't always succeed, and they you know, but they they they're very aware of their own cognitive biases. They're constantly trying to sort of talk. So, and and the they they're very and they're really anti um, sort of political fighting, if you like. Or oh, that's not quite the word before, but you know, in group out group fighting. They they. They, the whole their their online communities. So again, uh, uh, Elias Yukowski's blog, or uh, less wrong, and um, Scott Alexander's uh, former blog, um, Slate Star Codex, has now moved to a new place, which I forget the name of. But they they are explicitly places where you can go and you can disagree with each other. So you could be a right winger or a left winger. You could be a gender critical feminist or a trans rights activist. And the point is. You can go to these places and you can disagree with each other and you can do so polite as long as you can do so politely and then you will be welcomed there and it doesn't and and I think that is I think that's a really you know I, I'm I think the AI stuff is really worth taking seriously I think this is a a problem that needs to be solved but I also actually think how, since since my book I've since writing that book I've become much more reassured that we probably will solve it that you know DeepMind have people in DeepMind who are specifically worrying about this and they say, no, we're, we're aware of it and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll solve it. We'll, we'll make it happen. And then there's people like Stuart Russell who are very good at um, uh, an AI professor at Berkeley who's also written a book about, um, if you're interested in these things, recommend his, um, uh, Human Compatible, it's called. And uh, that is... It's called what, sorry? Human Compatible. Thank you. Um, and it is uh, very much on these topics. And he... Um, talks about the ways you can... I only sort of hinted a few because when I was writing my book, I did, his, his book wasn't out and there, there, were people, there, were, there were some thoughts about how to fix these things and I sort of hinted a few of them, but he addresses ways that we can actually solve it. So I, I think the AGI problem is real and it is worth addressing, but I'm confident or optimistic that it will be addressed and that will be, you know, we will solve these problems. But I think the, the real value of the rationalist community, which I'm a big really complete unironic fan of that they i think they have these these they allow these spaces that you can come along and you can be uh, you have any political views any sort of views you like and as long as you will argue for them politely then you are welcome and so if you don't come in and saying you you know all tories are bastards or all you know the the you're all um i don't know the uh, accusing each other of literal violence and murder and all these things and uh, then it can then you can make your points uh, sort of calmly and clearly. Then you, you have the and and, I, and it's been an amazing place for me to like, learn things because I'm sort of I'm only on the fringes of it. I'm not a rationalist community member myself, but I, I read a lot of the blogs. I speak to people, and I feel like you, it's this. You'd be amazed when you hang out in groups with people who have different ideological priors to you, that you realise actually, oh right, that this thing that I just assumed was bad people being bad, that you have this whole sort of reasoning reasoning behind it and and it is with you know for what seem like moral reasons to me and you and you and you can and it allows you to sort of be much less insular and prejudiced against the groups who, with whom you disagree and i i i i don't know i th- i think that is a really valuable thing that they've that they do and i i really whenever i talk or or write about them i try and sort of put that to the fore as much as about the um the ai stuff because i think in a way it's more it's more likely to have an impact on people's lives in the short term, and maybe the AI, you know, the AI, the AI stuff is this big, high stakes bet prob- that may or may not have the have a big uh, impact in a, in the next fifty years. But right now, I think it would be really helpful if more people were willing to talk across difference and talk about um, uh, and talk politely to people they disagree with. And I think that's a really useful thing they do.
Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Tom. That's my pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.